listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Wednesday. How's everyone doing today? Midweek, hump day, whatever you want to call it. Don't call it hump day. Here we are, deeper June 8th. Great to have you. We've got a great show, the big show. Samantha's here, Chris is here. Fans all gathered here around the table. Um, we look, Justin Trudeau was at the, uh, NORAD facility in Colorado today. So we're going to talk about U S Canadian relationships. The former U S ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman has just written an article saying we need to have stronger ties, a new treaty. Do we, do we want closer ties to the U S do you want to be like the EU? Would you like to be able to work in the U S and vice versa? Kind of open borders. Do we need Maybe a more rigorous defense alliance. That's coming. They're going They're going to do that. So the North American defense is clear. They're not making an announcement today, but they're working up towards it. So we'll talk about that. I think maybe the best story of the day, though, is there was a cancer trial. Get this. The New York Times uh, reported on this. A cancer trial for people with a really nasty type of cancer. And it was just 18 cancer patients, 18. All of them took this same drug and get this, every single patient, the cancer vanished. And there's a new paper in the New England Journal of Medicine describing the results. Cancer vanished, undetectable by a physical exam, undetectable by, from an MRI, undetectable from an endoscopy. What is going on? We are actually going to meet the first patient in the trial. She learned she'd had cancer in 2019. She participated in the experimental drug trial. Her cancer vanished completely, gone, done. Now, I don't know about you, but all our lives have been affected by cancer. Someone we know and love have had cancer, has fought cancer, has died of cancer. On this very radio program a number of years ago, my dear friend Mark Lewis in London, who died of cancer, and we documented his road, his fight, on this program, right up until he died. And now there's an experimental drug that had, so, 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 you know, that gets me going, right? I want to know about it, so we're going to meet that person. The war room's in, we're going to talk about... The conservative race, 600,000 potential members. What? We'll talk about that. And then the best story from yesterday that we're going to bring back is Abby Lampy. Remember she won the cheese rolling contest? Do you remember that? She, they, they literally follow a wheel of cheese down a hill. I don't even understand it. She face planted and won. Anyway, it was such a good interview. We couldn't even finish it yesterday. So we're bringing her back. So there's lots going on. I want to talk, though, about something that is true, and it saddens me. And, I, and, and then we're going to get into it <clears throat> as a group, as a team, as a fam. Abacus Data just put out a poll. That's Bruce Anderson and David Coletto. I'm going to read you what they wrote. They completed a nationwide survey of 1,500 Canadians, and they're focusing on trust. Trust and facts. I want to uh, 
show you what they found. 44% of Canadians agree with the statement, much of the information we receive from news organizations is false. 44% of Canadians say, if I hear it on the news, it's a lie. And 52% say the official government accounts of events cannot be trusted. More than half of people surveyed say they don't trust the government. And under half, but 44% say they don't trust the news. Well, this means the majority of Canadians have some trust in news organizations, writes Abacus Data's Bruce Anderson and David Coletto. More than 13 million adults, if we extrapolate 44% to the adult population of 30 million, don't. More. Those with no post-secondary education, Alberta residents, and those on the right show even greater mistrust. But by far the greatest difference are visible when we looked at party affinity. I'm quoting. The vast majority of People's Party supporters don't trust news organizations. And 59% of conservative voters feel the same way. Among those who think Mr. Pierre Polyevre is the conservative leadership candidate who best reflects their views, 55% don't trust media information. And among those who identify with Jean Charest, the proportion is 27%. More than half of those interviewed, and I'm reading, found themselves agreeing with the statement official government accounts of events cannot be trusted. As with trusted news organizations, they write, those with no post-secondary education, Alberta residents and those on the right, have markedly high, higher levels of mistrust of the government. And then they conclude the upshot. This has been going on for a long time, but these numbers point to a challenge that is bigger, more influential in the political life in Canada than might be expected. It's harder to agree on what to do to solve collective problems if you don't trust the basic information. Thank you, Coletto and Anderson. Thank you. Okay, let's dig into that for a minute. Do we know that mistrust is growing in the media? Yes. When I was at the trucker protest every day, people were screaming at me, you know, fake news, fake news, media is the virus, spitting on us, tossing beer cans at us. I get it. One of the reasons I went out there every day for three weeks was for three reasons, and I mean this, and this is my journalistic philosophy, because I recognize, I recognize profoundly that this is a real issue. You can't blame people. You can't marginalize people. You can't say, well, sorry, you guys are out. You can't. You can't name call. This is, an, this is a fundamental issue of communication and trust, and you have to listen. So I have three philosophies when I cover any event. The first thing is go to the source. That's why on this program, I always try to get, you want to talk about the pa- cancer? Let's talk to the patient. I try to go to the source. Two. So I try to be there. So people see, oh, that guy is actually not just taking pot shots on the sidelines. Two, I don't use people as backdrops. So if I'm doing, I'm not out there so I can use a protest as the backdrop to my television shot or my radio piece. Here's me using you as my backdrop and you get no say. If you notice when I'm out there, if someone interrupts me, I talk to them. Sure, I'm on camera right now. Go for it. I'll engage with anyone. Because that's what we should do. My job is to listen. And learn. And not talk down to people. Be there with people and listen. Now, sometimes they're spitting on me. 
or calling me a Nazi. Whatever. I ain't the victim here. It's my job. I chose to be here. I'm interested in why are they doing that? If, I, if, if I'm going to whine about being a victim, I should get out of the job. Now, I don't think it's great to call people that. I don't think it's, it's part of civil society. I, I'm not saying that's acceptable, but it is what it is. The mountain climber can't complain about the wind. That's how it blows. You don't complain about the weather when you're camping. You don't canoe on the river and say, I can't believe the rapids. It's part of what you do. And finally, third, go to the source. Don't use people as a backdrop. And listen. We got to listen. Distrust is becoming higher and higher. One of the reasons on this program that we always have call-ins, and later in the program we'll have a call-in on this, why is there so much distrust? But you have to have credible sources. You have to hew to the facts. You know, when I debate people on the show, it's not, I'm right and you're wrong. You may be right. But what, what are your facts? And it has to be credible. I don't, someone who has, who's read something on, on, on the internet or on YouTube about, about epidemiology and vaccines is no more credible than if I wanted to land a 747 for old people and I'd seen two YouTube videos of how to fly a plane. No. It's more complicated than you think. So, but, but there is a distrust in expertise as well. The virus of distrust, and it is, it's deadly, and it's going to hurt our democracy, but it's real. All right, I'm going to take a break. Should we be closer to the U.S.? That's next. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Justin Trudeau is in the United States today. He's in Colorado visiting the key NORAD facility. There is no announcement there, but I'm going to tell you the North American defense system that we share with the United States and have for many, many decades is getting a rebrand with the new threats from North Korea and Russia. Arctic sovereignty is a big issue. And the fact that the prime minister is in Cheyenne Mountain today, literally underground, shows two things. One Something big is about to come. They're negotiating a big new air defense, a big NORAD defense. But we don't know what it's going to be. But we know it's a priority. And, and two, that relationships with the United States have to change from a safety point of view. But what else? We've already renegotiated a new NAFTA under Donald Trump. But today, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada and the author of the best-selling memoir, The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty, Bruce Heyman, wrote an article in the Chicago Trib saying, we need even closer relationships than we have economically, from a defense perspective. And what would that mean? Who would benefit from that? Bruce Heyman joins us now. Ambassador Heyman, good to have you back on the show. Good to be back, Evan. Hope you're doing well. Can you just be less serious for a second? Congrats on the new grandchild. Thank let's, you. Let's talk little, about little the real boy. things. You got a little grandson, another one. That's fantastic. 
three weeks early. That's a surprise for everybody, I'll tell you. So, so, so that, see, this is it. You're, you're doing well. Um, but that's amazing. Mazel tough on that. So, Ambassador yeah. Heyman, you, you wrote this in the Chicago Trib. It's time for Canada and the U.S. to consider bigger, bolder partnership. What does that mean? Well, you know, first we have to sit back and have a recognition of how important the relationship is. Then look back over the last few years, not just in this administration, but the Trump administration and how he specifically went after Canada and attacked you for, on his basis, national security, um, taxing and tariffing steel and aluminum, threatening you on N95 masks, threatening your automobile industry if you didn't you know, behave in a certain way with, with our trade agreement negotiations threatening the border, just threatening. And so we now get ourselves into a world today where we've moved from globalization, which I think Canada and the U.S. really benefited. You know, we, we make and do and build, and we, we have so much economic activity between our two countries. 75% of your exports in Canada go to the United States. That's right. And yet we have a movement afoot, regardless of party in the United States, that we want to build America, buy America, make it only in America, and it's becoming more isolationist and protectionist, especially after the experiences of losing jobs to countries with low-wage people, low-wage employment, especially during COVID, where we recognized that we didn't have critical components for materials for ventilators and masks and those kinds of things. And now as we look ahead, um, supply chain disruptions going on with critical industries and then the war, there's a realization of, well, why don't we just do this ourselves? And this movement, I fear, is a movement that is accelerating and that will damage Canada-U.S. relationships going forward unless we further codify the relationship we have. But how do we do that? Speaking important. of Bruce Heyman, how do you, like, we've already got NAFTA. So get, let's get specific. What would further, what would a closer treaty and a new treaty encompass? Like, would this be more like the EU uh, where, Hey, I work in Canada. I can go work in the States. I work in the States. I can come to Canada. Free the, border the crossing. Answer, the answer is it's, it's larger and broader than what we currently have. Look, we have a number of great agreements. You mentioned NORAD. You've mentioned NAFTA. We have pre-clearance agreements that allow, you know, um, a lot of Canadians to enter U.S. Uh, enter U.S. customs there in Canada at the airport. And so, what I'm talking about is insulating and protecting the relationship going forward, thinking broadly, and protecting against these autocratic kind of, you know, potential leaders that could affect both Canada and the United States, either together or individually, that would threaten what we currently have. Now, look, we, we have a border that is, is there, 5,525 miles. It's, it's a phenomenal border. It's unmilitarized, yet it's not operating at the highest efficiency. And we have so much more we could do here with our border. We have, you know, we have about 120 border crossings where we have Canadians sitting on one side and Americans sitting on the other side. And we do this dance, yet we know how to do Nexus interviews side by side, and we know how to sit in airports together. We know how to, you know, now patrol the Great Lakes together. This is about also finding the path of, you know, energy, 
for national security reasons, the Canadians are going, hey, look, we've got oil to sell. And now the U.S. is going out and having conversations with Venezuela. And yeah, like Saudi the Arabia Keystone's and canceled. And it's like, wait, Venice, you're buying oil from Venezuela and Saudi Arabia? Not, I mean, these are real questions. Can, can these it, are line real fi- questions. Line so- 5 is getting, you know, the, the governor of Michigan wants to kill Line 5. Canadians like, wait, wait that, that, I thought we were buddies here. So why don't we the, – so the relationship has been and feels to me very transactional. We tackle each of these individual issues that Canada has with the U.S. and the U.S. has with Canada one by one. It's important we do that, by the way. That's fine, and that's a great job that is taking place both in Ottawa and Washington and our embassies and our various government representatives trying to work through these things, whether it's milk or – oil lines or various things. We're going to always have some of these things to work through. But can we think bigger and bolder? Can we think how to think out of the box a little bit better than in, in using this as a platform to expand NORAD, to understand for national security reasons it's better we're together? Understand so, so, so what would that mean? Life. Like, Just give me specifics as I speak to Ambassador Heyman. So, so just, I mean, I think some people would, we all want to, smoother transition but how about this I, I mean this in the eu um if you were if you live in spain you can go to italy and work um if you you know and if you're in france you cross the you can you know you you have free border crossing what we don't what about that or would the u.s say we will never give up our defense on that so my view is in proposing this in today's article is to not be overly specific to allow the two governments to negotiate this out. But but the broad answer is, let's be realistic from a U.S. perspective. Canada only borders the United States. That's the only country you border. And everybody else who gets into Canada either flies or takes a ship to get to Canada. And it's mostly flight other than crossing the U.S. border. The threat to the United States from people crossing the Canadian border is so de minimis that there must be better ways using technology and our relationship for opening and making that border much more effective. Another example that we we have already codified in preclearance that we allow preclearance for people, but we don't we don't allow the preclearance for goods, even though it's within the agreement. Supply chains are bottled up between our two countries. We 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 are going to need each other uh, for future growth, for protection of our North American uh, great land that we live on. And the better to do that codified in a treaty. Now, why a treaty? Because if you pass a treaty with Congress and Parliament, that any president or prime minister would have to unwind it through Parliament and through Congress. And so the degree of difficulty of hurt to our relationship, you know, it, it rises to a much higher level. And I am looking for ways to inoculate us. People sit down. Right. And hold, on, hold on. I got, I got there. Hold on. I'm going to get to Bruce Heyman. I'm speaking to Bruce Heyman, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada. He's proposing we really radically rethink the relationship and move much closer to the U.S., um, Ambassador, uh, I'd love to keep together. much closer together, rather. one 633 one 1-855-633-1010, or 7-1010. What do you think? Should we have closer ties to the U.S.? Ambassador, you can stick around if you'd like.
Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I have to tell you that we just had Bruce Heyman, the former U.S. ambassador on the program, and he's calling for closer ties between the U.S. and Canada. Look, we are already some of the closest linked countries in the world. We have a beautiful shared border. We need the U.S. for defense. We will tighten up our NORAD defense. We need the U.S. to help defend the Arctic. Those are big incursions. 75 to 80% of our exports go to the U.S. Our jobs depend on it. Much of our culture comes from the U.S. Look, many of our families and friends live in the U.S. This is a close relationship. And we ought not ever look down on it. Should we get closer, though, a treaty that codifies it, as, as Ambassador Heyman talks about? one 1010 or 71010. Look, businesses may want it. Maybe you want it for jobs. You want to be able to work in the U.S. without having to get a, a visa. But I will say this. Some people are saying, well, Evan, are you, are you blind, pal? As you're on the radio across this country asking this innocuous question and bringing on an ambassador, are you blind to the fact that in front of Congress right now, survivors... Family members of the victims of the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo are testifying before Congress. And the testimony of parents like Kimberly Rubio, the mother of Lexi Rubio, a fourth grade student who was massacred along with 19 other beautiful children in Uvalde. And her husband are testifying. Do you want closer ties with the country that... The pediatrician who treated the Uvalde victims, and I'm going to say something that is going to be hard to listen to now. So I warn you, if you don't want to hear details of Uvalde, I think you should. This is the reality of it. Don't. He saw, quote, two children whose bodies had been pulverized by bullets fired at them. Decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart. The only clue as to their identities was the blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, said the pediatrician. Right now. And now some people say, that's the reality. Children, unidentifiable from a massacre. And they still won't come on gun reform law. They still, there are still politicians who are saying, we think the answer is to have teachers be armed. Now, that doesn't say everything about America, but it's part of it. So I want to know one 1010 or 71010. Maybe you say, Evan, that's a tragic incident, but we all have these. It's much, much bigger issues. Uh, Henry in Burlington, what's up? Hi, Evan. Um, first of all, I want to say I really enjoy uh, your show. I listen to it every day of the week whenever I have the opportunity. So thank you. Thank you. Um, to to answer uh, the ambassador's uh, comments, uh, I think most Canadians generally would want to be closer to the United States. But for me, uh, for someone who works in the oil and gas industry, I get a bit uh, triggered, though, however, 
about um, what I see as lack of fundamental fairness. Uh, we have a governor in Michigan who wants to unilaterally shut down a pipeline that runs through her state, uh, the consequences of which would be devastating for the Ontario and Quebec economies. So um, we need to have a bit more fairness and reciprocity. So that's my comments. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I mentioned that's line five, as you know well, uh, Henry. And yeah, yeah you're 100% right. I don't understand. There's no Canadian out here listening to Henry and I have a quick chat that says, yeah, we'd love closer ties, but you're buying oil from Saudi Arabia and from Venezuela and you're desperate to need it. and You're tapping into emergency supplies and you shut down Keystone from Canada. Really? I'm not saying you have to choose oil over climate, but you're going to buy it. Buy it from your best friend. I would only add that 95 percent of Keystone has already been built. The yeah. portion running through the United States is already up in operation. It's just the couple hundred miles straddling the border area between Alberta and, and the Upper Plains states that, frankly, hasn't been built. Yeah, it's a great point. I appreciate that. that but it's been killed, and, 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 and the proponent is, is out, but we'll see. Uh, thanks, Henry. A g- great call. Lots of texts here at 71010. Let me read some and respond. Evan. I would love closer ties to the U.S. My company has technical people in the U.S. and Canada with specialties in different product lines. We need work permits to go back and forth. I would like this to be totally dealt with and managed at a corporate level and not deal with work permits and U.S. taxes. I agree. Now, here's my question. If you had mobility mobility rights, you could work in the United States. You could just cross the border willy-nilly. You had, uh, you know, you had some kind of nexus thing where... You can just cross the border like in Europe. Uh, They have some information about you, so there's a privacy issue. But you could work there. Your family could work there. Would there be a big brain drain? There is a big shortage of workers. Would we see Canadian workers, as we've seen with nurses, whip across the border and take the big money in the States? Would there be a Canadian brain drain? Evan, definitely no closer military and security ties with the U.S. We don't want to go to hell with them. just be careful. I, I mean, I, I, a lot of people say that. I will just say this. Um, there are a lot of uh, beautiful things in America and Canada. But there, let's, let's not self-mythologize. We have a lot to improve in Canada. They've got a lot to improve here. Now, it doesn't mean, look, I am a Canadian. I live in Canada. I love Canada. I think it's one of the, maybe the greatest country in the world. I love it. It's safe. I love our culture. I love our people. I love our land. But I don't think the U.S. is going to hell. And they're the dominant superpower in the world. They've done a lot of bad things, and we're all critical of them. Let's be, let's be eyes open. But let's also not condescend. Incredible culture, incredible innovation, incredible people. You drive through the United States of America, it's hard to find nicer people in the world. It just is. They're just some of the finest people you'll ever meet in your life. Same in Canada. This is what Bruce Heyman's talking about. We're cousins. Evan, we don't need closer ties. We need to continue negotiations. They're 10 times bigger. Even Biden immediately pooped on our energy industry, and they can keep their guns and gun owners. One benefit, though, would be Canadians learn the true meaning of hard work and service. Evan, the U.S. and Canada are inextricably linked economically and culturally. The more we act separate trade-wise, the greater the cost. Can I just say something about that? When the free trade debate happened and Brian Mulroney was trying to secure the free trade, and he did, People thought 
well, Canada is just going to be absorbed by the U.S. We'll just basically become American. But it turns out culturally we've gone the other way. There's lots of surveys, maybe most famously in a book called Fire and Ice, that showed that even though trade got closer, cultures didn't. Canada changed. The U.S. changed. We have our own culture, our own way, in the same way that the Italians are not becoming more Spanish and the French are not becoming, you know, more like the Spanish. I mean, it's changed. We have our own culture. We're a confident culture. We're a confident democracy. So this idea that we're going to be absorbed, I think, has actually been proven false. Now, there's good reasons for that. But we have a clo- but what would happen to some of our protected industries? And this is a big fight in Europe too. What would happen to our dairy and cheese? We got protected supply management. What about our telecom companies? What about our banking system? During the 2008-2009 banking collapse, the US had it much worse. Why? Because the banking system is completely Now, it allows for bigger money, bigger opportunities, but when the the poop hits the fan, they went down. We didn't as much because our banking system was much more regulated. And protected. Sure sure felt good in 2009, didn't it, folks? We got hit, but not nearly as hard. So text me. Closer ties to the U.S. or not. And certainly on defense, I could tell you this. When it comes to NORAD, that's a big one. All right, I, I'm going to take a break. The first, this is a, a can, is this a cancer miracle coming up? Honestly, wait till you hear this. Instant access to real people, real stories. The Evan Solomon Show is on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Look, many, uh, many of you, maybe all of you have been impacted by cancer. Two weeks ago, one of my dear friends lost her young sister, who I knew, to cancer. Two young kids. One of my dear friends in England... Mark Lewis, who many of you met over the years, he was battling cancer and his fight on cancer. He took it right here on the program and he passed. So when I saw a story called the cancer's trial and re- remarkable results, an experimental drug that 18 people took in a trial and 18 people had their cancer disappear, we, we got to talk to them. So Sasha Roth was the first patient in this trial. She learned that she had rectal cancer in 2019. It's a unbelievably horrible moment. And she took this experimental drug, and the, re- the results are remarkable. And Sasha joins us now. Hi, Sasha. Hi there. Thank you for having me. I am so glad to have you because this is a great story <laughs> for so many. First of all, just tell us what your experience was because, um, and I know this from my own very personal experience in my family and then when you some says cancer to you it's a terrifying moment go ahead so for me um well a couple things were happening i was the first patient um but when i was diagnosed in september of 2019 the trial was not yet fda approved so for me there were you know a couple things going on where one i knew i found out that i had lynch syndrome and also this mismatch repair which might be one and the same at this point but 
I knew from the Sloan Kettering doctors that standard care, which would have been standard chemo, radiation, followed by surgery, would not have been an option that would have been that would have done what it needed to do for me. So, right. So, yeah, and so at the time, Sasha, like just so people know, you're 38, you are feeling great, you're an athlete, you run a lot, you've got a family business, and and, and you've got <laughs> you have some bleeding. You, you know, go to the bathroom, like, oh God, rectal bleed, nightmare scenario. And then someone, so you go to the doctor, you're smart, right? And they say, and then you get like the worst possible diagnosis, right. Right. So, so I went to the doctor, honestly, thinking that they were going to tell me I had like a gluten sensitivity because I felt I felt great. I was active. There was there were no signs that I knew of as from signs of blood going to the bathroom that would have, you know, alarmed me to go to the doctor. So I really went as, you know, just like I would to any other doctor's appointment. Right. So and it's not like, like you had I a history. This was like, this is like a shot in the dark. Like, holy crap, I've got rectal cancer. Like what? I'm 38. What, what, what is going on? Precisely. <laughs> so shocking on many levels. Um, the unfortunate situation is we have been dealt a heavy hand with our, in our family with cancer. So my dad had passed when I was 18. My mom had cancer um, about six years ago and is in her, unfortunately, final days of life as we, as I speak to you. Oh. Um, so, yes, when I was diagnosed, there were a number of things. For me, it almost felt different than I was scared, but I was more scared for them than I was for myself, if that makes any sense. And I didn't want my family to have to go through it. Um, and then, yeah, so I feel like it is terrifying when you first get the news and they're yeah. just trying to navigate how to do it, where to do it, and, you know, being a self, you know, advocating for yourself in order to find the best possible options out there. Right. And you're you're so right, Sasha Roth. By the way, I'm so sorry about your mom um, uh, having lost my dad just over six months ago. I know uh, it's these are long, long journeys, and you've already been on a long journey. Um, Sash, let, talk about this drug now, because people are listening to you across our country, and they're like, "Okay, cancer. What what was this on? What drug did they experiment with, and what happened?" So it was immunotherapy, and I'm not going to – I feel like I'm, I'm going to rip it to pieces if I try to say the name properly. But the way they presented to me, it wasn't, I guess, named at the time. But I was getting an immunotherapy infusion every three weeks for a six-month period. And, see, I mean, from what – I know what others experienced that were in, you know, more difficult situations for myself where they had full blockages and – pain of high levels prior to starting treatment, I know they started to feel the effects of the immunotherapy, I think even after one or two infusions. For me, I stopped bleeding, I think, after the first. Um, and then while they biopsied me, they treated my biopsies the same way in the lab, you know, the same way they would treat me as mm. they would in the lab. So um, they could see that the immunotherapy was going to work. And then I think I got scans halfway through um, halfway through the six month period. And then I was told at that point, you know, the tumor was starting to go away. And by the time I had finished the six months, it had completely vanished. So I just, I'm going to read from the New York times here. The, the, the cancer patients, rectal cancer patients face grueling treatments, quote, chemotherapy, radiation, life altering surgery that could result in bowel, urinary, and sexual dysfunction. Some would need a colostomy bag. Like this is a tough road ahead. You take right. this experimental drug which is, as you say, you take this every three weeks for six months. It's 11 grand a dose. 
And but but it's not like chemotherapy. Does it when you take it? Is it? Do you feel like crap for a week? Is it like chemotherapy? You actually you actually do not. It, it's it's in a, it's administered in the chemo lab, so it goes in through an IV just like chemo would. But I live in the D.C. area, so I would drive to New York, and sometimes, especially because COVID started in that March, I had to do those trips all in one day. So I would drive three and a half hours get the infusion and I could drive three and a half hours back. So aside from being tired from a long drive, you really could go about your everyday life as you knew it. I never had to stop working, working out, any really anything. That's just that's good. And then the tumors disappeared, Sasha? Uh, yes. <laughs> so the way the trial was originally written, it was going to be six months of immunotherapy and then I was going to move to New York City and get radiation paired with chemo at Memorial Sloan Kettering for a five-week period. And I had, I was, it was that Friday night prior to me picking up and moving over the weekend to the city that Dr. Sersik called me and said that her entire team had reviewed my scans. And she basically was like, are you sitting down? She was like, we, you do not need to come cancel everything. And you, you are cancer-free. So there is no need for radiation or chemo. And then the trial was then, edits were made for the patients behind me that it then became six months with option for radiation, chemo, and then option for surgery if needed, but not one patient has even needed the radiation or chemo. If people want to, this is, they're called checkpoint inhibitors. I think, is it pembrolizumab? And there's another name, as you say, they're, they're pretty complicated names. But they're right. called checkpoint inhibitors. Um, Sasha, you're still cancer-free. This worked for uh, colorectal cancer, and, and I've only got less than a minute here, but is this going to be tried for other cancers? So what I've, I've watched almost every interview that Dr. Sersik has, <laughs> has been doing over the last com- couple of days while she's been bombarded. But CNN had a great clip of her today, and it is going to be used um, on other gastro, gastro cancers, so stomach, pancreatic, they said they're, I think bladder is one of them. Oh and God. I feel like it's the first signs of it, you know, it's, you know, takes it that many steps closer to being able to be used. I'm sure, you know, for all cancers down the road, I just don't know when right. that comes, but I know in the foreseeable future, it will be uh, used on, on the other ones. We're, we're going to bring that doctor on Sasha Roth, first patient of the trial. You're cured. I'm so happy. Please take care of your mom. Uh, and thank you. I and congratulations. Thank you, Sasha. We'll take a break. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. that last story was great. Sasha Roth, first person in a trial, totally cured by cancer. We're going to follow up on this. Try to get the doctor of that um, remarkable new drug from Sloan Kettering. That That is uh, mind-blowing. It all, obviously breaking all over the U.S. right now. Doctors all over the place. That was the first patient, Sasha Roth, 38 years old. Tumors gone, completely vanished, along with every single other person in the trial. If only you could cure anything like that, including political disagreements, but you can't, and that's why we have the war room. 
Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. Zane Velge, political campaign strategist, partner at Northweather, recovered, I hope, from his bout with the uh, dreaded COVID. Uh, formerly worked with the Calgary mayor and the Al- Alberta uh, premier, Rachel Notley, is here. Tom Mulcair, who's an up-and-comer from... I uh, think former NDP leader and now CTV political analyst, but he's young. He's got lots of time. Also a lawyer, also is in Quebec government. Boy, his resume belies the fact that he's only 18. And uh, Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, and quickly becoming my son's favorite person. Uh, my son's like, I really like that, Tim Powers. So, so, so Tom and Zane, you've got a long way to go because there is no one who has been better to my son as a mentor figure than Tim Powers. Now, I worry about my son, but... Now, this has nothing, yeah. Yeah, this has nothing to do with beer and entering first year at McGill, right? It has nothing to do with yeah. that. Yeah. Well, Tom, since he will be going to McGill, I expect you to ply him with beer as well. But so I'm just sucking up to you now, Tom. No, no, because well, my son played rugby this year, and Tim, of course who's the chair of Rugby Canada and is, is a great supporter, has been has been his rugby tutor, and he looks up to Tim on that and other things. Mm. Isn't that nice. cool? Yes. They can have the beer after the rugby game. Yeah. You have that an never orange, happened, orange and Tom, beer. Never. No, no, only, no. only concerning part was uh, the Tim, usage. Was I was there with The Rock in Newfoundland. I saw you. You were. That's right. Yeah, you yeah. were. <laughs> I was going to say, the only concerning part was you just slipping in and other things there, Evan. I, I just want to make sure I, I, I did catch that. I did catch well, and other rugby. things. rugby. You finish your rugby game, it's, you know, you got you to relax. Um, Tim, you, you wrote something. Um, I'll start with you. Um, I spoke to Pat Brown about his campaign. He said, we've smashed records. We've got uh, 150,000. Uh, here's a little clip of Pat Brown talking to me. We've surpassed the 150,000 figure. We're very excited about that uh, milestone. Um, the previous records we saw in, in party leaderships were more in the range of, of being in excess of 40,000. Uh, and then uh, I spoke to the Pierre Polyerv camp. That's Pat Brown, uh, Jenny Byrne, the uh, campaign senior advisor, and she called Patrick Brown a liar seven times in seven and a half minutes. Here's one of them. <laughs> no, that's well, it's a complete lie. That's obviously another lie by Patrick Brown and his advisors because Evan, what they do is is what they do best is is lie. There is in no way the uh, Polyerv campaign is against uh, giving out a full list of uh, of memberships, but what the other campaigns are asking for is a partial list, which is. Again, besides the point, it's completely against the rules. Okay, so so uh, <laughs> we, I'll, I'm going to leave oh, it to you man. guys. But Tim, first of all, th- this could be 600,000 members. What do you make of these massive, unverified claims that the camps are putting out, and what did it tell you? Uh, well, I do believe that there is a large number. I don't know what that number is, but our party sources, and you've probably talked to them too, Evan, who aren't affiliated with the campaigns, aren't pushing back on this figure uh, of around 600,000. If that is true, take away the campaigning of the campaigns at the moment. That's very good for the Conservative Party, because don't forget, that's also $15 a membership. That's $9 million. Bingo! Uh, you know, uh, also, it would suggest, for good or for bad, uh, that the Conservative Party leadership has become a vehicle right now for people to express their frustration with the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. So if you're the Liberals, you've got to be concerned about these numbers, even though you may think getting Pierre Polyev, should he win as, as leader, is something to salivate about. But uh, Evan, listening to Jenny, listening to Patrick, watching the campaigns, and Tom is the one person who's gone through these personally, I thought of Baghdad Bob. 
remember him, the Iraqi information minister, because <laughs> it's like the whole the country's burning, the Saddam statue's been toppled, but they're all believing but what they're saying. But I don't know what the hell is true, and we won't for a while. You know, uh, I... I... Tom, talk about this. I think Tim's right. I don't know what the final number is going to be. It's huge, okay? But what does it yes. tell you about the claims, the the amount of support these campaigns are getting, but also the, the fight is, I mean, it makes anything I've ever seen look like uh, the tea with the Damn. queen. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, this is brutal stuff. Uh, you know, Jenny Byrne calling him a, a liar once is already hmm, close to the limit of what you're allowed to say in politics, but going on and on and on like that. By the way, that was one of the very first things that came out of the mouth of Pierre Poitier right at the beginning of the campaign. And, you know, all you have to do is meet Patrick Brown and know him a little bit. And I've met him and I've talked to him and I know him a little bit. You know, he doesn't certainly come across that way, but I guess maybe there's some part of him that just scares the bejesus out of the uh, Poilier crowd. I think that what's worrying them is that, sure, they've got a massive, massive number, but where is it concentrated? And is it spread out as well as the Charret? hyphen Patrick Brown camp. I mean, this is the big thing that people keep forgetting. Even if it is 600,000, and even if the lion's share of that turns out to be Poiliev, doesn't matter. It's 338 ridings, 100 points per riding. And, you know, you look at the different places where Charest has support spread out, Ontario, Quebec. I still think that Poiliev's got it. Any objective analysis of the numbers that I've seen tends to say Poiliev's got this. But he had it until the day he fired the governor of the Bank of Canada. I think he had it on the first round. I no longer think he does. And then everything opens up. You know, all you had to do is watch Leslie Lewis's body language with Poiliev. I mean, she was practically rolling her eyes when this guy was talking, and she was practically hugging Jean Charest, nodding to everything the guy said. So that's a communications effort, and it's a way to say, not this guy, but if need be, this guy. Okay, Zane. By the way, I should say I talked to the Charest camp this morning because they won a third debate. They don't believe the numbers either. No one does. But he said every candidate should welcome a third debate. Are you in Pierre Polyevre, Patrick Brown, Leslie Lewis, Scott Aitchison, and Roman? Yeah, of course he wants another debate. He's not releasing his numbers. What does that tell you? Uh, it tells me that his pathway to victory is slim, if non-existent, Evan. I mean, let's let's go back to strategy as a lens here, right? Why did yep. any of these camps put out numbers? They wanted to showcase to their members we're still in the hunt. There's this 99-day delay between today when membership sales are cut off and when you vote. We want to let you know we still have a chance at this thing. If you're Jean Charest, you can read it in the messaging. You know, he says that he's overperformed in Calgary. What does that mean? You've overperformed in Calgary, right? Like, okay, well, congratulations. I hope to see you here at the Calgary Stampede, Jean Charest, overperforming. But the thing is, you know, they're trying to showcase that there's viability here. And I have to disagree with Tom. I think this is a first ballot slam dunk for Pierre Paul ever because i think you know if we keep viewing this thing through strategy there's a bunch of questions as it relates to what i call the stickiness of the membership how good and what's the quality of the memberships that each of these camps have brought in let's just ignore the numbers for a second the strategy question I want to ask is, how good are the memberships that Pierre uh, Polyev has brought in versus the memberships John Charest has brought in versus the memberships Patrick Brown has brought in? And when you look at even how Patrick Brown's <clears throat> structure of selling, not using viral rallies, using more decentralized networks, you probably have a, a strategy question for Brown now where he's looking at the numbers and saying, 
oh crap, I got to go back and resell these people, not quite literally sell them a membership, but sell them on me because they have a membership somehow bought for me, but I need to sell me back to them because I need to have my number be at 70 or 80% of turnout of my 150. Right. And then you ask the core question of where the Polyev numbers are. Are the quality of the memberships of those who've gone to a rally, the viral nature of his campaign, good or not. And so there's a lot still to be determined. And a, and a lot of that's going to be the determination of the yeah. stickiness and who shows up in this membership. Class. Well, by the way, I'll tell you who wasn't too sticky for Pat Brown, Dan Muse and Kyle Seaback, two <laughs> MPs yeah. who good just point. switched allegiance. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, and if, if, that's not, that's not a good sign. It's the they, law they, of large numbers. They saw yeah. the numbers and they're like, we're going over. <laughs> yeah. Listen, uh, there, there, it's always best to lead a parade from behind. Uh, you know where you're going. Okay. Uh, let me take a short break. I just think it's so fascinating. Um, the numbers are huge and I think, Tim, I want to pick up on what you're saying. Um, the Liberals can't, doesn't matter who they think, when the rival party is putting in numbers like 600,000 paid members, they have free membership, they may be shaking in the red boots. We'll come back and we'll talk about that. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. Now more from the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We are inside the war room again. Uh, and news just broke on the break. Uh, Zane Valdez here, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers. Uh, so while we're on break, Jean Charest is calling for a third debate. We were just talking about it. And then while we're on break, uh, Patrick Brown tweets out, I'm all for a third debate, Tim. He wants more debate. Now, like, I get the timing. You know, Pierre Polyever's got 311,000 claimed unverified members. So it looks like more than double Brown, what thought he thought was a jaw-dropping number of 150. Um, I get it. I actually think it's a good idea to have more debates because the last debate uh, in May or it's crazy to have debates yep. that far away and then yeah. not, not yeah. vote till yeah. September. But what do yeah. you think about that, Tim? Well, no, no shock there. Look, I, I, our abacus data showed it, uh, polling data showed it, as did other polling data. Uh, when Pierre had that English language debate and he made that ludicrous claim about firing Tiff Macklin and had what wasn't his best performance, his numbers dropped among conservatives. Uh, Brown and Shireen know if they have any hope at all of beating Polyev, they they feel they need to expose him more. Uh, they feel that he is not weak in the public arena. Maybe more conservative members should want that because that may also help Pierre hone his performance, but I think they'd rather win first. Look, it is obviously totally deliberate on the Polyev campaign behalf and very smart on their behalf to come out and say, this: we've got this in the bag. We've got 312,000. Come on board now and make this less divisive. Piers, Brown, and Charest are going to have none of that. Whether they get another debate, we'll see, because the party rules, as I recall, Evan, do say they, you know, they haven't ruled out the possibility of another debate. But uh, that's to the advantage of the underdogs at this moment. Yeah, uh, um, Tom, a source in the Charest camp, yet they think um, the claim of Pierre Polyever, he's got 25,000 memberships sold in Quebec, quote, really? impossible all candidates together haven't sold that much he's playing psychological wars to try to bully people out <laughs> that's what they're saying yeah 
<laughs> well, it seems to have worked in the case of those two MPs uh, that were close to Patrick Brown and said they were going to support him. I think that uh, Charest is grasping at straws. You can't talk about the other guy's numbers unless you put up a number. And if he says, this is how many I've sold, and this is how they're distributed, and we think that we've got this, that's fine. But you can't just keep saying, oh, mine's bigger than yours, and like not showing anything. He, so he's not going to be, he's not going to get away. Just for the record, Tom, we're, it's a family show here. Just uh, <laughs> what? My like, number is what, 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 like, just what, come what, on. By the way, there are, by the way, the one thing that's happening here is our listenership's growing. Go ahead. Yeah. I always say, I will never tell you my number, but I've got the points to win. That's, that's, uh, that's the, the statement. Okay, but with regard to the Quebec stuff, I mean, uh, there's there's some decent organizers working with Poilier. Um, You know, Leo Hasakos is no slouch, yeah. and he's been out there slogging away. Yeah, and he, and he's proven that in the past. But those those numbers just don't seem credible to me because uh, there's there are not that many conservatives here in Quebec. Although in the Quebec City area, they've got Jerem, and if he is actually putting his shoulder to the wheel, he might be producing some good sales for them. Does does Zane does the Doug Ford victory in Ontario? Hey, I'm a son. Hey, by the way, I, I talked to uh, Corey tonight on this radio mm-hmm. show. OK, mm-hmm. he said, you know what we did with people that were the anti-vaxxers? We purged them from our party like they're out. Uh, Roman Baber, one of them. You're gone, Baber. Like, that's it. Right? And so, and others. Rick Hillier, you're gone. You know what we did? We stood up for vaccine mandates when we needed to. Uh, sorry, Randy Hillier. Uh, you know what we also did? We we saw people on the Ambassador Bridge. You're blocking it. You're done. And that's why we won votes in Southwest Ontario and places like Windsor, because we stood up for them. Does that mm-hmm. not, I don't know, does that mean something to federal conservatives? Two ways to look at this. The first way is, look, Doug Ford has produced a template in Ontario, seat-rich Ontario, where you need to win that showcases what you need to do, federal conservatives, get your act in order. Second way to look at it, they're two different parties, Evan. They're not competing for the same group. The conservatives of national have told very clearly by the pure polyev sales that they do not care for a Doug Ford strategy. They want something totally different. Yeah, but it's two, it's, it's two it's, different worlds. That's exactly right- it. Right now, we're in a leadership race. So it really doesn't matter that much what Pierre Poiliev says, because if he's talking to his base and he's got the best people with him adapting his lines to talk to that base and then he wins, then he can do whatever he wants for the three years after that until the next election. But Kenny, he can in this, change. This well, could Doug question, Ford change? Yes, Doug Ford's first year was was two bulls in a china shop, him and his chief of staff, Mr. French. And they were just knocking over everything that they came into contact with. That was the way that he had decided he was going to, you know, he won that way. He had beat Patrick Brown that way. And he had won his election, barely. And now he was just going to knock stuff over. And then it, after one year, he looked at this and said, I enjoy this. I've got a responsibility. I'm going to change my tune. And he did. And the guy that talked to the electorate just a couple of weeks ago is a completely different person. And yeah, I think but, that that's I, what we got to remember. I think fundamental to that is the point of person that that as right. a person, he right. has the ability to pivot, to get away with the pivot, to get away right. with the apology, to Fair do enough. the Ralph Klein thing. Do we fundamentally think that that Pierre Polyev either is a interested or B B has the 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 sort of agility? Pierre, were you talking to me, Zane? You want me to? Uh, yeah, that's right. yeah, there you go. Uh, Freudian slip. A is he interested or B does he have the agility to actually shift from his current framework of how he is scorched earth, either through him or his proxies, and how he's going to appeal to the electorate at large? Well, he, he's going to have. T- Tons of focus groups. He's going to have lots of polling information, and he's going to have decent advisors like Jenny Byrne. I mean, these are not crackpots. You know, it, 
Pierre doesn't mind. But they're Puritans. The and I think Trump that's what's side. interesting here. Yeah. Right. I think what the most interesting thing here is, is I, if I refer back to a point Tim made, which is this, it might look like unabashed good news for the conservatives. Five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand memberships under the tent. Look at this show of strength. I'm not sure I believe that, because right now, if I'm the liberals, I'm looking at Pierre Polyev as a threat. But I'm also seeing that what he's done with the conservative party is house all the fringe perspectives and institutionalize them. And if I'm the liberals, I look at that and say, mm. OK, even if you don't like us, even if you don't like our shape shifting as the liberal party of Canada, yeah. you can't look at the other side as a reasonable option because they're yeah. not serious. And they are now providing a home to everyone that had a fringe perspective well, well, Tim, over the last two well, days. Tim, uh, weigh in on that, because, you know, if, if, if Mr. Polyev wins, does Patrick Brown stay and uh, his supporters stay? Or what about Sheree? Or vice versa, by the way. And, and and what does that tell you, Tim? Is it two parties uh, disguised as one right now? Well, I think there's more than two factions in there. I don't know if they're two far parties. I don't know what they'll end up uh, in the end. But I go back to something I think you quoted Peter McKay saying, Evan, that if you know if you court populism and angry populism, you end up in that the belly of that populism. That's okay, can I do the quote before you wreck the quote? I oh, just in, in defense of Peter McKay. <laughs> I mean, if the guy Peter McKay has a great quote, and then and you put it through the machine. Peter McKay said, "Once you feed the when you feed the beast." You end up in its belly. I mean, he's eloquent. Give the guy. His I, I like the Tim version better. It was Jeez. longer. Yeah, and it was bloated. It was oh, come on, give that Peter McKay a break. Version. The Newfoundland version. Like <laughs> <Okay>. The <laughs> Newfoundland version. So let's say you've got a beast. Let's say you're having beers with the beast, and the beast is your butt, and then all of a sudden you give him a free meal, and the next thing you know, you're paying for the beast meal. Yeah, and, and that's the danger that uh, that Pierre has. And can you see a scenario? Maybe it's possible, but look, look at the way Jenny and Patrick interrelated to each other. I can tell you from knowing those people over the years, there is no love loss there. So let's say Pierre does yeah. win, and Patrick did come forward or does has come forward with 150,000 members. Boy, Pierre's going to have to develop a new set of skills, and maybe he has it. Maybe he has that dexterity if he wins to keep those people uh, involved and inward. And the same with a lot of the people who supported Mr. Charest. I mean, again, no love loss there. Um, and the bigger lesson from Ford, which I think whoever wins needs to understand, is you don't win with less. You win with more. And you win when you're more palatable to more people. Right. And if that yeah, but that's the Charest argument, Tim. And Charest's argument has been, I know how to win elections. I've, I'm a serious guy. I've been a federal minister. I've been a provincial premier for several terms. Vote for me. I'll help you win an election. I got election. 10 seconds, Tom. Go. And the answer has been, we don't care. We want the yep. crazy stuff because we're all angry right now. Well, in the lesson of Aaron O'Toole, uh, I'll say one thing during leadership and another thing, that didn't work either. Anyway, well, God, this was a great war room. Tim, uh, send over the beverages later and we'll all regather <laughs> on the phone. Yeah. Tim, Tim, Tim's, our, Tim's our tender. Uh, Zane, Tom, Tim, you gentlemen are fantastic. Um, we're going to be chasing the cheese down the hill next with Abby Lampy. Stay with us. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Sometimes a story is just 
too good. You can't let it go. You literally have to metaphorically chase the cheese down the hill. Let's say you fall on your face and the radio show ends and you're in mid-flight and you still want to know about some story. You just bring the guest back for another kick at the cheese. And that's what we did with Abby Lampy, the 21-year-old engineering student, just graduates from North Carolina, and she decides, you know what? My brain is so valuable. I've just invested so much time and money into becoming an engineer. But, you know, hey, I've done the Krispy Kreme challenge. I've run, you know, 10K and eaten 20 donuts. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the 2022 Cooper's Hill Cheese Challenge, where I run down a very steep hill, fall on my face, wipe out, ragdoll down, and chase a giant wheel of cheese because the Brits have this crazy idea, and then she wins. Now, yesterday, she was in the middle of how she was training for this idiotic issue, which I love so much, and we got cut off, and so we brought Abby back. Hi, Abby. Hi, how are you? I loved your story yesterday. So just to (laughs) remind people... Just to remind our listeners who may not have been there, um, just to remind us what exactly you won and how nutty this race is. I just want to remind people before we get to your training. Yeah, so Cooper's Hill Cheese Race is a very, it's a it's a very steep hill, a 45 degree slope. It's a one-two ratio, one of the biggest in England. Um, and you basically just go rolling down a hill hoping to get to be the first one down um a block of cheese is rolled and max speed about 70 miles per hour and then it hits a fence you just want to be the first one down at the hill though so um yeah i participated in it and i won the sunday which is an amazing honor (laughs) how many people were in this one abby how many other cheese heads were chasing the wheel of cheese down the hill, Cooper's Hill, which is steep, folks. And if you watch the video, this is, you will, like someone broke their leg. Like, I don't know how everyone doesn't have a concussion. How many other people whipped down the hill? So for my wave, 13 people, including me, participated, but max of 25 can participate. And, And just so people know, you were slammed pretty hard, weren't you? I was shaken and rolled a bit. Yeah, that, that, that hill did not treat me nicely. You snapped your, come on, you hit your head pretty good. Yeah, but I think my head's doing fine today. I think I was just dehydrated and running on two hours of sleep yesterday. <laughs> do, you, do you, by the way, do you get to keep the nine pound wheel of double Gloucester cheese? I do. I do. I shipped it back to my parents on Monday. It took me actually four hours to get that shipped because in England, it was so difficult to find a proper post office. So the first one said, you can't ship it because it's over two kilograms. The second one wasn't an actual post office. The third one was like, we're going to have issues with customs. So I had to get uh, go to parse, uh, like uh, like another nearby town, get it shipped there. And the guy who was helping me had already seen the video and had seen me win the champion um, of the cheese rolling. So that was, that was really crazy to be on the other side of that. Right. And he's like, I'll help you. So, so by the way, how much does it cost to ship a nine pound wheel of double Gloucester cheese that's already rolled down Cooper's Hill uh, to, to the United States? Was that like a, like a $500 situation? No, luckily it wasn't that expensive. It is kind of embarrassing how it was about 80 pounds, which maybe is around a hundred dollars. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. And um, they were saying, so they had to put a value of this cheese on the customs form. And I don't know how much this cheese is worth because I want it. I mean, there's not a label that says this cheese is worth X amount of money. So the the guy who helped me with the shipping, he put a hundred pounds. So I guess it might be worth a hundred pounds. At nine pounds? No, it's worth way more than a hundred pounds. But who's going to eat it after it's rolled down a hill? Okay, so so I just want people to know when we left off yesterday, you were telling me how you trained for this psychotic race. How did you train? So I went to a local uh, park near NC State, and I rolled down some hills with my boss. I also watched a lot of film leading up to this. So the week before, I would spend the night watching film, hours of film, and then I would dream about the hill. So that was crazy. Um, And I strategized prior to the race. So two days before, I got to Gloucester and scoped out the hill. I I walked down it, but I ended up sliding and rolling down it rather than just walking because it's so steep. And then on Sunday, I actually watched the first two races, downhill races, which were the men's downhill races. So I watched who won and how did they win, where they were and what route they took. So all of that contributed to me winning. And I I take pride in um, being an industrial systems engineer. And I definitely think that that paid off using all those skills. Oh, oh yes. Being an industrial systems engineer and rolling down a chair. This is what I love. It shows that engineering is good for anything, right? There's no problem. No problem too crazy that an industrial systems engineer cannot engineer and solve. Engineers all over the world. Unite, please. It's multifaceted. Yes. This is like, oh, can you build a bridge? Sure. But I can also catch a a nine-pound wheel of double Gloucester cheese going 70 kilometers an hour. I know the best route down. Uh, Did anyone in your group get hurt that you were like, yeah, I won? And you're like, oh, oh, sorry, Johnny, you busted your leg. Honestly, I don't know. They ushered me to the um, part of the hill where they were doing pictures and interviews. So I didn't even get to say hi or bye to the rest of the people participating. And you weren't injured? No, not badly at all. Um, I have a few bruises and scratches, but that's to be uh, that's to be expected. Yeah. Now, did your parents say, Abby, we love you and we always will support you. In fact, we'll happily go to the post office to pick up your giant wheel of cheese. But please, my darling daughter, don't ever do this again. They have not said don't do it again. So I think it's fair game that if I want to do it again, I can do it again. Are you going to defend the title, Abby? I'm not sure. It depends on whether my job will give me a few days off next May. Wow. You, do you have the job already? By Like you're famous. Yeah, now. I like do. Um, what, where are you working, Cheese Champion? <laughs> where, where are you working? I'm working at Pricewaterhouse in Cooper's, PwC. Yeah. Oh, man. So they're really getting the best of the best here. So can I ask you, you have done the Krispy Kreme Challenge, which is you eat 12 donuts over five miles in an hour. I get that. Now you've done the Cooper's Hill cheese roll. What is your next crazy competition, Abby Lampy? Um, well, I was not able to do the Krispy Kreme challenge this year. So I guess going back to do it um, this upcoming year will be great. I always run in this really big blue inflatable uh, suit. It's like a blueberry. Uh, so I ran twice now and I've run in that suit both times. And the story about this, when people hear, people can hear me running before they see me and the look of terror they have when they look behind them and they see a giant blueberry passing them. It's, it's a look that I never want to forget. 
No, you just like it. You, but you've always been a, an athlete, right? Yeah, yeah. You I love participated in a lot of sports growing up. But you also have a pretty good sense of humor. That's the thing. Like you just like <laughs> to have a good time, right? Oh yeah. I, I think if you're doing anything, it should be funny or at least amusing. Um, yeah. I just love to have a good time. Oh my God. I hope you, I'm sure you're going to be on like the, the American talk shows. Let, let me ask you this just before I let you go, Abby. So you're going to do that. You've got a great engineering career. You're still chasing cheese and Krispy Kreme and running in blueberry suits. There's, there's a lot going on for you. You know, there's another cheese champion who was like the reigning champion who you've beaten this. You may have started a feud here. Really? No, I don't think so. The the cheese champion for the women's race. So Flo Early, she's run one four times, yeah. but she did not participate this year because she got so badly injured one year. She broke her collarbone running this race. Like she yes. she got obliterated. Um, but she was there to present me with with the cheese. But I don't think any like. When you I don't think it's you versus Flo? It's not Abby versus Flo? Because I've seen no, pictures of Flo. <sighs> she's, she's pretty good. She's very good. Yeah, she didn't participate, but I don't think I would want to participate against her. Um, but I think she's, I talked with her. She said, I'm, I'm out. You're the big um, cheese now. Listen, you are the big cheese, Abby. Don't let I'm anyone take that. Cheese. You're the big cheese. Abby, 21-year-old woman from North Carolina, a systems engineer, won the 2022 Cooper's Hill Cheese World Championship. Abby, thanks, man. You're the, you rock. Good luck. Keep inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. Strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. Look, I do uh, I do the Evan Solomon Show for two hours a day. I speak, we speak together. Uh, then at night, I do CTV's Power Play on on CTV News Channel, and on Sunday, I do CTV's Question Period. So when people talk about oh mainstream media, I get it. I've been part of it. Now, I spent the first 10 years of my life in a, as an independent media, running a magazine with my business partner, Andrew Heintzman, running Shift Magazine. So I've been on both sides of this. But in those years, trust in media and trust in government and trust in science has plummeted. And there's a new survey out today by uh, Abacus Data, Bruce Anderson and David Coletto. And I spoke about it at the beginning and they said 44% of the people, when asked, say they don't trust the media. And 52% say they don't trust the government. And it breaks down along party lines, as I told you. And I want to know what is fueling your distrust of government and media. Now, there's lots of things, even science. People don't trust the science of vaccines. But the findings here are media and government today. They're going to have more, I think. That's Abacus Data, and it's a really interesting report. one 855 or 7-10-10. or 7 Much of the information from news is false, according to 44% of the population. And official government accounts of events cannot be trusted, says 52% of the conversation of the population. 13 million people or more if you extrapolate the 44% to the adult population of almost 30 million. 
Now, they break down a lot. No post-secondary education, Alberta residents, more on the right side. That's how Abacus breaks it down. But but it's it's endemic. It's all over the place. Now, I think this is, look, the media has to recognize this. The media can't pretend, oh, we don't, we don't, we don't care. Oh, don't we're, we're, be defensive. We're good. We're doing our best. People don't believe that. People don't believe anything. For me, and, I, and I'd love to take your calls on this, 1-855-633-1010 or 7-1010. Um, and if the media wants to be trusted, they need to stop accepting money from the government. It's the media's job to hold the governments to account. Media is less likely to be unbiased with their paychecks when they depend on the government. Yes. I think this whole media bailout thing is complicated. Um, you know, Remember, Bell Media and CTV does not take any money from the government. Now, that may change with new government policy. I don't know. It's not. It's above my pay grade to be can- candid. But we do not take any. Now, lots of industries accept subsidies or tax depreciation, so governments are involved in a lot. But media has to be not only independent, but perceived to be independent. Evan, there's a huge number of events, large and small, that are not even reported by the media. It's no wonder people don't trust you, because you're not as objective as you think you are. You're either manipulating or being willfully ignorant or incompetent, or all three. Let me me tackle that one. I get a lot of people... Uh, notes will say to me, Evan, you never cover this doctor who says vaccines don't work or COVID was rife for this. You always shut out these other voices. Well, we don't, you know that. But remember, just because there's a voice on the internet, that doesn't mean it's a credible voice. Things have to be published in credible. For med- Look, just like you, you wouldn't ask someone to fly your plane if they'd watch the internet and they said there's a better way to land the plane than mainstream piloting. You know, when it comes to medicine, look, science is, is, is not math, but it has to be credible. And there are credible systems. There are approvals. And there are journals of reckoning. And there's peer approval. And you have to follow that. And I try to follow that. So it's not like, like I'm not a medical expert. Throughout COVID, I really tried to follow peer-reviewed Now, someone says, well, Evan, well, if that's the case, why did things change? Because science changes all the time. We have to acknowledge these things. Let let me bring on a caller here. I got a lot of callers about distrust. I think distrust is a huge issue. I think if mainstream media doesn't take this seriously, we're in big trouble. Um, Rob, what's up? Hello. You're on, Rob. Thanks, Evan. I have two examples of why I don't trust uh, the mainstream media any longer uh, out of many many but uh, here it is the uh, first of all the russian collusion hoax with uh, with trump that was uh, repeated for three years by the mainstream media has been recently proven to be a complete fabrication that was in a court of law in the united states check it out on the internet and you'll see it comes uh, many mainstream organizations have admitted it the second one goes back a little further uh, something, an example of something that has never been reported on in uh, North America uh, is the grooming gangs of Great Britain. goes back to the 90s. Uh, it's a very salacious story. Uh, it doesn't fit in with the multicultural narrative. Well, sorry, Therefore, what's this story? Never... Sorry, what's this story? Uh, grooming gangs of Great Britain. You Google that one and you will see a horrendous story 
of sexual abuse and white slavery that has never been reported here in North America. Okay, I, I haven't reported. heard that. Yeah, and, and I don't know you that story. It. But you, but you, you, ch- you check it, Evan. I'll check it. You I'll check, check it. it I'll check it. I appreciate the call, Rob. Uh, just on the uh, is the Russia Gate a hoax? Uh, let's not be so qu- quick about that. Um, and, and, and I don't. I'm not. I don't have time to get into the whole. I'm happy to any day, as you know. Um, but uh, Trump's interference in uh, Ukraine and 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 the number of people who've been charged for um, working with the Russians. Um, and, 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 um, some of his advisors setting up meetings with Russia's president, uh, they've been arrested and they've been charged like Mike Flynn, like, okay, so there, there's a lot there. And, and, and Rob, to be candid, um, I'm not going to relitigate that, but I don't think it was a hoax. Uh, and we could talk about that. Uh, Tom and Markham, what's up? Hello, Evan. Yeah. Um, I think the issue, uh, you really nailed it this this afternoon when uh, you mentioned the, about the money that the government uh, gives uh, the media. Now, there's no clarity on this. So this is the first I've heard that Bell Media is not taking any kind of funding. So uh, kudos to you for actually bringing that uh, you know to light. But no clarity whatsoever as to who is taking any of that $600 million from the federal government. Uh, I think a lot of people are really hesitant to believe anything because... It, the perception is that the media is in the pocket of the feds. Yeah, Plain just just on that, the Canadian Periodical Fund, that's one. Print newspapers and magazines get that, digital periodicals. Uh, so now the government is changing that. They say broadcast media may be eligible. That's new. I don't, and again, I say, I don't know if they're subsidizing it, but, um, you know, um, uh, Bell did take um, help, Bell, who owns um, CTV, for for workers that were laid off from the government. But that's different than the media sector $595 million bailout package that Bell did not get, just just for the record. Go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, the clarity is very, very weak on that. And the other thing is, uh, as far as, uh, you know, uh, collusion with the government, uh, another American one would be the Biden um, computer. Uh, Yeah, the joke. I'm right. Gosh, I got it. I hate cutting you off. You know, I do I, I'm just syndicated across the country, and, and I got 10 seconds here, Tom. But let's do this again. Like, I'll, I'll do this topic again. I don't know if the Biden laptop collusion thing. I know that's a big issue. We can take it on, but unfortunately, I'm out of time. I got to go do power play. Let's let's talk more about this. Seven, ten, ten. I w- I want to hear it, and I'm open to this conversation because we need to have it.